Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Okay, so today we have Dr. Sarah Schulist, who is a linguistic anthropologist at Queen's University and is an associate professor whose research focuses on the social and political dimensions of indigenous language revitalization. She uses collaborative ethnographic methods in order to provide support to communities engaged in revitalization efforts, particularly in contexts of multilingualism and urbanization, as well as to understand the implications of language policy and school-based language programs in shaping indigenous state relations. Her research has addressed indigenous language issues in both Brazil and Canada. And today we're here to talk about her book, Transforming Indigeneity, Urbanization and Language Revitalization in the Brazilian Amazon. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. So first question is, why this book? Uh, Okay, so why this book, I guess, is more like why this research? Um, I have been interested in questions of language revitalization for, I guess, almost 20 years now. And I pretty quickly, I was in a more traditional linguistics context uh, when I started doing work in this area. Um, And I pretty quickly became a lot more interested in the social dynamics of what's happening um, than I was in documenting the languages themselves. I was a lot more um, invested in questions of why and how uh, to make Indigenous languages work in uh, current society. So some of the gaps that by the time I got to the point of doing the research that's in that book, some of the gaps that I had identified were uh, thinking about uh, questions of revitalization in urban environments. Uh, in Canada, at least, where I had originally intended to do some of my research, um, over half of Indigenous people now live in urban areas. But when you read research on language revitalization, it focuses on sort of communities in a very traditional sense. So uh, reserves here in Canada, reservations in the US or in Brazil, the sort of uh, remote Amazonian small village communities uh, that are pretty far removed from one another. Um, And knowing that so many Indigenous people are migrating into and have lived uh, for a long time in urban areas, um, I started to want to do research on those questions. Uh, And the opportunity to work in this particular place uh, came about somewhat um, serendipitously. Um, Someone suggested it. I spoke Brazilian Portuguese, and I looked up this this town, um, Sagabriela Cachoeira, which is a town of about 20, 25,000 people, where there are approximately 19 indigenous languages still spoken regionally, and which became the first place in Brazil to make three of those indigenous languages uh, locally official as part of an effort to try to revitalize them. So. I, I, it was like, as soon as I sort of learned about this place, I was like, I have to find out what's happening in this place. This sounds so fascinating and positive and exciting. Um, and over the course of my research, I, uh, came to understand it wasn't as positive as it looked on the surface, but it, Mm. um, wasn't as it did offer a lot of lessons and opportunities for thinking about, uh, what we can do with language policy, how we can approach, uh, language revitalization. Um, in spaces that are not so kind of restricted to one language, uh, monolingual environments of, uh, you know, small communities, and uh, to start to move towards strategies that uh, just open up the, the bounds of what we mean when we do language revitalization. Excellent. So you, you mentioned that there were, the, the situation was somewhat more negative than it looked on the surface. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it was in particular around uh, the language policy. Um, I thought that the whole idea of um, how it had come about that three indigenous languages were official languages um, in the municipal area seemed really creative um, and 
uh, the, the population is very uh, predominantly indigenous. And so it kind of suggested that there would be a strong presence for indigenous identity. Uh, and when I got to, uh, to the fieldwork, it, it, it was actually really hard when I first arrived to even find real active use of indigenous languages. It had very little public presence, even sort of starting a walk around and kind of documenting signage and which became part of one of the chapters in there. Um, there was very little uh, text in the official indigenous languages. Uh, there was limited presence in schools. There was um, hardly any sort of active use in public contexts other than schools. Um, so there was a lot of discussion when people, when I asked people about the language policy, they would use the expression that it, it existed and it had been established, but it had never come off the paper. It, it, mm-hmm. it was an on-paper policy. Um, and so thinking about, they saw it as a failure. And so on the one hand, I was like, okay, my initial perspective from outside before I arrived was very hopeful and optimistic that this was an example that maybe a lot of other environments might learn from. And I got there and people were like, not so much. Uh, and it wasn't nearly as prominent as sort of you might have expected from outside where they um, kind of had a few news articles about how this dynamic indigenous place and isn't it, um, isn't it great to see it? Uh, because in Brazil, it's quite unusual for a city to have that high, have such a high proportion of indigenous people. Indigenous people are a very small proportion of the population in total, uh, like less than 1% of the Brazilian um, population. And uh, in most places, you know, you might have a town with maybe 40, 50 percent. And so Sao Gabriel is like massively different from other places and having 85 percent indigenous people in the city. So um, it was kind of presented as this very profoundly indigenous place. And uh, the, the, the surface then when I arrived was like that that hasn't really come into being. And then as I looked into it, I thought more, um, I began to think about ways that even though they talk about the policy as a failure and they talk about these elements as a failure, actually these um, strategies were being actively used by speakers in order to carve out spaces to um, enhance Indigenous identity and that they were offering a whole bunch of opportunities. So I went from like very optimistic when I, before I got there to somewhat pessimistic to a much more balanced perspective of the two. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a really, like the kind of journey you kind of expect and hope, I guess, because you don't want to be just pessimistic. So what kind of, um, kind of learning opportunities do other communities have by looking at the, the, uh, community that you looked at? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think uh, for me, one of the big takeaways has been how to effectively think about uh, language policy for revitalization. Um, and one of the challenges I think that emerged in Sao Gabriel, uh, well, a couple. First is that the way the policy was developed and written draws on the idea of using official status to quote unquote valorize indigenous languages. So to give them a status, to give them a, an elevated um, position that they lacked. Uh, and one of the things I try to talk about is valorization is distinct from revitalization. So valorizing the languages gave, gives people the opportunity to use them without feeling shame. But it doesn't actively push towards their... Uh, more active incorporation into everyday life. So when policy is written and, and policymakers who didn't really fully support the policy really didn't really fully support really seriously digging in on the indigenous languages would kind of use that as an excuse. Like we valorized them. Here they are. They're valorized. Right. So I think when people are developing policy, they need to be really clear about the intent that they're putting forward with the policy and what they're putting into the text of what that means, because it will get taken up and used in particular ways. So I think language policy can be, and there's a, an ongoing conversation right now in Canada about whether an Indigenous Languages Act should make Indigenous, all of the Indigenous languages of the country official, quote unquote, on some level. Uh, and I think, sure, great. I would love to see that happen as a way of recognizing their role. 
But if that happens in the absence of really concrete um, information about what that means to provide support and, uh, you know, to be totally clear, like a dedicated and stable funding source for Indigenous mm-hmm. language teaching and revitalization activism, um, then it runs the risk of really falling apart quickly. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, when he makes the world go round and <laughs> lets us do all these things. So yeah. what is the, speaking of money, what is the situation in Brazil, at least at the time that you were in San Gabriel? Yeah, it's worth noting that uh, the time that I was in San Gabriel, and the, the, the book came out in 2018, but it's based on research mainly from uh, 2011, 2012, with a little bit in 2014. So it's all pre... Um, it's all during the Dilma Rousseff um, government. Uh, it's all pre the Bolsonaro uh, cuts to uh, uh, what's happening in the Amazon. Uh, but even so, even under that relatively uh, friendly government, uh, it was a very, very poor place. Um, health uh, status uh, is was was extremely uh, difficult. Um, it's, so I say it's a very poor place, and that's like judged in terms of income. Uh, a lot of people in in the Amazon would object to having their poverty defined strictly in terms of income because if they are, they 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 often um, function on a very mixed model between uh, capitalist uh, market economy and continuing to maintain their like horticultural plots and stuff like that. So even if they come in at numbers of um, income that are that are low a lot of them would argue that that doesn't represent their level of poverty. Uh, but in terms of funding for schools and funding for um, resources that they would need, there is a significant, significant lack. And there's a lot of expenses involved in um, delivering services in the region because, uh, so I did my work in the, the city of San Gabriel, um, but the schools would be, you know, um, the entire municipality, the municipal region, um, would be governed by the same kind of school board. And the municipality uh, was about the size of Portugal. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge geographic area, largely yeah. um, populated. And uh, there are roads in Sao Gabriel and for about a thousand or a hundred kilometers uh, down the road you can get. But for the most part, you're traveling by river and it can be several days transportation to get to the more, the most remote parts of the region. Um, and even just getting to San Gabriel, there's no road into it from the rest of Brazil. You have to either fly or boat in. So getting stuff into places is inherently complicated. And things like um, implementing school snacks and delivering um, food for, for kids to have during, um, during school hours, uh, delivering textbooks, delivering all of these things. Uh, would take up a lot, a lot of resources. So it's both less well-resourced and more expensive to do things uh, in a place like this. Yes. Wow. Did you travel outside of San Gabriel at all? To a limited extent, I went, uh, I didn't go more than a six hour boat ride from town, um, both because uh, my visas didn't allow me to travel into the uh, indigenous territories. And because I went with uh, a spouse who has health issues and a baby at the time, uh, my son oh. and uh, my son was uh, five months old when we arrived, and uh, we were uh, there until he was fourteen months old. Oh wow! What was that like? I loved it. It was so great. <laughs> I recommend babies for field work. Um, <laughs> it was both great from a parenting perspective because I think I, I really got a, a radically different sense of kind of what I wanted to be as a parent from parenting in such a different environment. Um, but he also was very popular and opened a lot of doors. Everybody wanted to hold him and play with him. Um, and, uh, um, it allowed me to get insight into different parts of, uh, life that I think I wouldn't have get gotten, uh, without having that sort of humanizing dynamic. Um, yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> Bring a baby, everyone. Bring a baby. <laughs> very popular. <laughs> so your first chapter um it's called playing indian mm. the politics of language identity and culture in urban amazonia can you talk a little bit about what you mean by playing indian yeah i mean i picked up on that um it was it was fascinating to me there was there's an interaction that uh i used to open the chapter in the book um 
of a little girl who was two and a half at the time, and her family was unquestionably indigenous. Um, they were, uh, her mom was, was a speaker of her language and really active in the movement. Her dad was a member of a different indigenous group. Um, they were, there was, there was no question about whether these kids would be considered indigenous or not. Um, but I got there one day and came up and she was the youngest of like four and she had put like toilet paper and things like around in a little dress. And she was doing kind of a fake version of, uh, a traditional dance. And her parents told me, they were like, look, Sarah, look, look, Sarah, look, look what she's doing. She's playing Indian. She's pretending to be Indian. And I was just so struck by the idea that this girl who is clearly indigenous could also be playing at what it means to, to be indigenous and, and reinventing what that looks. And she's a little girl, so she's not consciously reinventing anything. Um, but as I thought about you know, what's happening specifically in the city. Um, it's a space in which it's no longer clear exactly what indigenous people do. When you go into the limited extent that I did, um, into the, the rural areas to see, um, you know, people don't have to perform their identity. They don't question what it means. They just are their daily day, their day-to-day life is inherently, uh, indigenous. Um, but in the city, there becomes this this challenge and this play with what it is that you're actively doing by um, embodying an indigenous identity and 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 even like this distinction between indigenous and um, Indian um, is is similar in Portuguese that than it to, to what it is in English. Uh, there's a, a more negative connotation to Indianness, and people would sort of frequently distance themselves sometimes from they're like yes i'm indigenous but i'm not an indian i'm not sort of that and they would use that to be a more like uncivilized or not not exactly but like to be a more negative connotation um of the word so when they're talking about like performing and inhabiting and playing at different pieces of this identity what really interested me is is you know taking seriously these forms of of play as uh and performance as reconceptualizing what it even means to be indigenous in this new space interesting so the the city itself you said it's 85 percent indigenous yeah and yet it still seems to be behaving like it's a european space i'm guessing it's very like what yeah like classically brazilian space like um there's a yeah so it's almost all indigenous people, but the city was established as a missionary outpost. Uh, and it houses basically most of the institutions of, um, the Brazilian state and non-indigenous, uh, life. So like the church, the, the most indigenous people are members of churches. Um, but like church headquarters, uh, uh, government functions, um, you know, run out of there to serve the, the interior communities. Um, and military, there's a major military base, actually, is the other thing that's there because the oh. um, municipality extends to the borders with Colombia and Venezuela. So an interesting uh, piece of that question is at the time that I was there in 2012, Colombia was considered the sort of threat of people could like by the military. They were uh, worried about incursions from things like FARC uh, and mm-hmm. Colombian revolutionary dynamics but colombia has calmed down and venezuela has uh completely changed has not calmed down uh and so now people are crossing the border from venezuela in these rural spaces and the military is more interested in policing that border um so there's a really interesting dynamic around that tri-border region um but yeah sao gabriel is the place where those main um non-indigenous organizations are housed and the whole structure infrastructure is very reminiscent of, of any other sort of small town um, area in Brazil that I had been to. Um, it contrasts with uh, there's another largish settlement uh, near the Colombian border called Yaurate, which is still in the same municipality. And it's known as like an indigenous city. So it's a bigger town, but the whole dynamics of it were kind of established by and for indigenous people who are grouping together um, for different reasons, sharing resources and stuff as things have become more challenging in the smaller um, areas. Uh, And so you've got the like sort of 
bigger community, but it still sort of follows indigenous rules versus Sagabriel, which is full of indigenous people. But the, the structural rules really very much are like non-indigenous Brazilian. That's so fascinating. It just shows the power of institutions, I guess. The institutions and historical context, like it really felt in some ways like people had just always seen Sao Gabriel as like the non-Indigenous space. Um, and uh, and yeah, like it's there on that basis. And, and it even would be like people actively would switch um, the language that they used in the city versus when they were out of the city. They would say, yeah, I just I seem to speak more. Uh, my language when I when I'm out of town, even if I'm speaking to the same people, just really seem to shape how they how they um, occupied the space. Wow, I'm just I'm so blown away by this. I think it's so fascinating. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the education system because, like, this is obviously one of the most important parts of language revitalization, at least the way we conceptualize it now. Um, so what is the education system like and how much indigenous language is there in the system itself? Right. So um, there's two answers to this. The first is that there is a the sort of conventional Brazilian education system. And the second is the differentiated indigenous edu- uh, schools. And there's been a significant push within the indigenous movement uh, in Amazonia as a whole and in this region in particular to create indigenous schools. The uh, Brazilian constitution, the one currently in place, uh, dates to 1988. So the military dictatorship of the 60s, 70s, and early 80s uh, fell and redemocratization in the 80s led to the creation of a new constitution. Um, The new uh, constitution includes and recognizes indigenous rights essentially for the first time. and enshrines the right to have your own for indigenous communities to have education within their own languages and in their own cultures. So in order to follow up on that, the indigenous movement has really pushed for the creation of indigenous schools. And they have a category of school called differentiated schools. And these are active and they would they many of them are immersion schools in indigenous languages. They include like full kind of curriculum um, melding between um, indigenous content and mainstream Brazilian content. Um, and they are, there's a lot of standardized testing in Brazil, uh, within the education system and they're exempt from some of the, uh, standardized school, school level testing, um, to, to, to sort of, uh, maintain the qualifications of the school. In San Gabriel, there is a super interesting debate about whether schools in the city could be considered indigenous schools or not. Mm-hmm. And essentially, uh, at one point, they were like, we are mostly indigenous, therefore, we are an indigenous community. Uh, therefore, we should have the opportunity to have some indigenous schools. So they had labeled some schools as indigenous schools. At a, at, as this has progressed and people kind of debated it and different people were in different positions of authority within the education uh, department and things like this, uh, people started to say, people started to maybe push back against that in part because they wanted their schools to be classified according to those standardized testing ranks. And so they said, actually, the city itself is not part of an indigenous territory. It's not demarcated as an indigenous uh, land. Uh, And that is actually legally impossible. So there is a contradiction in terms within the Brazilian constitution between being a city, between being an urban seat of a municipality and being an indigenous territory. So you literally cannot be both a city and an indigenous territory at the same time. Um, So because then they're not classified as an indigenous territory, some people use that to push back against the notion of having them as differentiated indigenous schools and situated them as mainstream Brazilian schools. So within those, the teaching of the indigenous languages uh, is limited to only one of the three co-official languages, uh, which is uh, Yengatu language. Uh, And it is only taught in a couple of the schools um, until the uh, approximately, uh, basically the equivalent of, of grade five in North American school. Um, so, and then after that, the kids switch to the, the argument is they need a more serious, 
language to use and they need to, to dedicate themselves to learning uh, English or Spanish as their second language requirement. Um, so, and, and even what is uh, given within uh, to have Yangatu in the schools, um, I interviewed several uh, uh, school administrators and many of them said, yeah, we know we're not going to teach the kids the language in the small amount of time that we give it because uh, they give it, you know, an hour a week or something like that. Um, we're not, they're not going to learn Yangatu this way. Uh, we're using uh, the language in the school to valorize it and to make people believe that, accept that indigenous languages have a place in formal educational environments. So again, that language of valorization comes into play where it's not even about actually learning it. It's about saying, hey, isn't it great? Can we can have uh, the indigenous language in the school? So it was a really, really small amount. And the whole debate about you know, what counts as indigenous is the city indigenous is the school labeled as an officially indigenous school. It all came into play and was used as kind of like material to debate, like material that became part of the political debate uh, about what should be done actively in, in the schools. Did you also interview parents? Yeah, absolutely. Um, most of my interviews were with uh, people who were somehow involved in language work, but um, many of them were also parents. And I actually interviewed, I did a focus group with some, um, or a couple of focus groups with uh, uh, teenagers. Hmm. Um, so yeah, many of the people that I interviewed were uh, both parents and teachers or both parents and actively involved in some organizations that uh, I worked with. Um, and they... Uh, because of the nature of my research, I tended to interview most of those people tended to be ones that supported um, increasing the language. Um, and the other thing that became the focus of what parents were saying was frustration that uh, of all the languages that are present in the city, only Yangatu was the one that their kids had the opportunity to learn in schools. Um, and they felt like, why? I don't care if my kids learn um, this language that is not part of their identity necessarily. Um, I, I want my kids to have the opportunity to learn their own indigenous language. Um, and so I worked pretty actively with a group of teachers and parents who were trying to create a much more um, deeply indigenous school and a differentiated indigenous school in the urban area. Um, but that has not been successful. Um, the kids I talked to, um, were really interesting because they tended to have a really, it tended to be the case that people thought kids and teenagers weren't interested in learning their languages and didn't care about being indigenous. And when I spoke to the kids, they felt actually, uh, in some ways really abandoned by the, op by those who could give them the opportunity. Um, you know, so I was talking to kids as young as 13, 14 years old and they were just felt really lost. Um, they said, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind using my language, but my mom never uses it with me. My dad never uses it with me. Um, and so they, they um, wanted to, but also felt that they were being sort of pressured by their parents to uh, go to university and this, you know, gain the skills that were required to um, get into a good school and that they shouldn't prioritize their indigenous languages uh, with that in mind. So there's a lot of contradictions in how parents talked about what they wanted and what kids experienced, uh, which is something that um, if I can ever uh, get a good chance to go back, um, like if, you know, COVID ever ends, um, <laughs> I, I'd really like the chance to work more uh, with some of the youth and and to sort of facilitate more of that dialogue because that started to come out really towards the end uh, of my fieldwork and and thinking about how to facilitate dialogue between um, parents and teachers and youth uh, I think is really important because I feel like within language revitalization discourse more generally kids and youth are like rhetorically central. Um, we really say, oh, we really need kids and youth to be learning the languages, but they're not interviewed a lot. They're not the focus of, there's a few other uh, people who look at indigenous youth, um, specifically, but for a lot of the language revitalization work, people aren't actually asking the kids how they're experiencing some of these things. Um, and I think that, um, it would be really worthwhile, uh, to try to like bring their voices to the fore even more. 
Yeah, I agree. That's always been the missing piece. You're right. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's good that you brought up teenagers because yeah, we should be talking about them more. They're the ones who, well, and, and kids too. They're the ones who need to learn the language if it's going to continue to the next generation. Um, so speaking of children and teenagers outside of the education system, and I mean, well, you can talk about the home too. So outside of the education system, what other opportunities are there for them to learn their language or languages? It's just in the home. And the, so the okay. education system doesn't provide much and there's just in the home, um, you know, there's been some fits and starts of offering, uh, out of, out of school, um, language classes, uh, to, to people usually only in one language. I know of, uh, they, they had the church offered Tucano language classes, uh, for a while. Those were targeted mainly at adults, uh, and they didn't, uh, continue. Um, with the group of teachers that I worked with a lot, I really kind of, I, I worked on trying to convince them that creating things like youth groups and, um, conversation circles and, um, like festival events and things like that, uh, sort of more informally on the weekends, uh, to try to convince them that that was a good way to kind of direct their energy. Uh, but they, they really were attached to the idea of the school. Um, and so that's, uh, um, it's been frustrating to observe because, uh, I think there's a lot of energy that could go, uh, in a, in a different direction. And they're, they're waiting for a school, um, that, you know, schools are, are really complicated to build. Um, so it may never come. Um, and I think being creative about, uh, language learning opportunities is, is super important. Uh, but for the most part, you have to learn it in the home. Um, there's also a really challenging dynamic, uh, ideologically, uh, because the, the nature of the relationships between language and identity in, uh, a good part of the region, uh, is, uh, characterized by, uh, a pretty well-known anthropological pattern of linguistic exogamy. Uh, the Tucanoan language group, uh, has been, uh, documented as, as, uh, a multilingual cultural group rather than thinking about them as sort of one language, one culture. So if there's nine, 16 languages that participate in this sort of network approximately, um, then we need to think about it as a culture with 16 languages in it, essentially. That's, you know, maybe a reductive, even, even that is a reductive explanation of culture. But rather than thinking of it as 16 distinct cultures, uh, because the rule is that you have to marry someone from outside your language group. And this means that you, uh, most people are multilingual because each of their parents traditionally, uh, comes from a different language group. So they would tend to learn their mom's language as a kid, as a baby. Uh, but the language of the community and the language of your identity is patrilineal, def patrilineally defined. So it's your father's language and you're expected to sort of start using your father's language as you grow up. And as you pick up on it, uh, you know, uh, through the sort of socialization uh, process, the thing that this means that I observed is that if you don't know the language, if you can't actually speak the language, you're often treated as not really a, you, you sometimes get treated as not really a full member of the group um, because there's not even a word for what it, what, what it looks like to learn the language as an adult. There's two distinct words in the languages for speaking. You speak your own uh, indigenous language, you speak your father's language, and you imitate the languages of others. Oh, you interesting. Can, you can learn to imitate other languages. But I asked people if they could learn. I said, you know, I was trying to use the different, the different terms in, in one of the languages that they were sharing with me. Um, I said, can you, can you learn your language? Like I gave the example of a man that I knew who, uh, had grown up in the city and was a non-speaker of his original language. Um, and I said, well, can he learn the language now he's in his thirties? And they were like, that doesn't make sense. I said, what would you call it? If he were to learn to speak, would you call it imitating or speaking? They're like, it doesn't happen. That it just can't happen. So it was like, there was like, 
no category into which an adult or late in life, later in life learner could even fit socially. So kind of figuring out how to not only overcome the challenge of like creating opportunities for people to learn, but the challenge of getting people to think that it is possible and socially acceptable and give a word for um, being a learner of the language was something that kind of needed to happen. Again, so fascinating. Uh, I mean, why, yeah. why, going back to the first question of why this book, I'm like, why not this book? Like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I had to write all these things. Absolutely. No, there's a lot, a lot in here. So, um, there, so I, I guess you've already kind of talked about this, but maybe you can talk about it a little bit more. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, revitalization through schools, but what other forms of revitalization might there be uh, in Brazil or Canada or, or, or wherever? Sure. I really think that uh, revitalization outside of schools is super important uh, and perhaps even more important than revitalization through schools. It was actually one of my frustrations that whenever I said I was interested in language uh, language revitalization, people immediately directed me to the education people. And I was like, but I want to talk to other people. It's super important. Um, so, I mean, I think cultural, like, there's two pieces to language revitalization. The first is getting learners, right? And so there's a number of different strategies you can use for, for teaching, including schools, but also uh, different uh, community-based programs like the master apprentice models or um, even like immersion camps and things that happen outside of schools for, for learning opportunities or online learning opportunities are also being created a lot, uh, these days. But the second part, and I think the one that, um, needs, it's not like nobody pays attention to it, but it needs even more attention than it gets, uh, is creating uses for the people who, um, speak it. So you can have as many learners as you want, but if they don't have anywhere to use it, then it doesn't matter. Um, so strategizing around uh, increasing domains of use, media can be a good promotion strategy, but just even creating spaces and setting kind of informal policies that this space will use um, X language, um, using it within, um, uh, you know, government and meetings and, and ways that you can um, kind of uh, like higher status spaces uh, can be, can be really important to promote. Um, I've lost half my train of thought. Sorry. No, that's okay. That was, that was definitely the kinds of things that I was yeah. thinking about. So is one of the challenges, the fact that there are so many different languages in this one community? Absolutely. hundred um, percent. When we, and that's one of the reasons I, you know, I think it's interesting and important to look at is uh not all communities are monolingual. Uh, like I feel like yeah. from a linguistic anthropology perspective, that's really obvious. Um, and yet when we uh, talk about language revitalization, we're often acting as though they are. Um, so there's so many languages. And that's why even uh, when they started talking about making anything official, they felt like making all of them official was too much. So they narrowed it down to three that are the main sort of lingua francas of the indigenous region. Um, and even three, uh, they started to feel was like too many and, and sort of unwieldy. Um, so I'm really interested in some of the things that are happening now. There's some uh, new research and I'm hoping to uh, continue my research looking at just actually um, how people interact multilingually uh, in these kinds of spaces. And I think it's really instead of thinking about, oh, which languages get the most attention and how do we sort of compete for, uh, you know, the scraps that are available to us within the education system, I'm also really interested in seeing how uh, we can think about creatively preserving the multilingual interactional dynamics rather than just sort of the languages as codes. So multilingualism, I think, creates a lot of challenges, but... It also is the culture. And so I think doing away with the idea that like we can't quote unquote preserve the culture without paying attention to multilingualism itself. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's really important. I think it's I was just thinking I was just thinking about, you know, some of the more successful realization 
uh, efforts have involved like one language, no. like the Maori or the Hawaiian. And it's, yeah, it's just much more difficult when you have m- more languages. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try, just that it's a, a thing to think about. Right. So you'd kind of get like two things. There was sort of like promoting indigenous um, issues in a general way where some people would kind of treat it as like pan-Indigenous concerns. Um, but language inherently doesn't work as a pan-Indigenous thing. Like you can't, re- you can't sort of use one as a stand-in for the other and, and right. really be covering it. And that was definitely a frustration for um, the, the Cotria people that I worked with most, most closely um, who were not included in the um, official list. And who, you know, the, the theory was that almost like a trickle down valorization theory, like if we valorize yeah. three, then it kind of valorizes the rest by extension. <laughs> um, and they were like, but, you know, it doesn't like it, you know, like, no. it doesn't actually happen that way. Um, so uh, but then, like, I mean, some of the languages are super small and it's really a, you know, poor uh, poorly resourced uh, community in general with a lot of additional concerns. So um, how do you set priorities uh, around that? It's, it's, I don't think actually simple or straightforward. No, no, it's not at all. So you mentioned COVID a little bit earlier. Are you still in touch with the people in Brazil and San Gabriel? Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, uh, internet access has gotten even better since, uh, since I was there. So I'm able to be in touch with quite a few people. Uh, and there. how is the COVID situation in that particular community. I know it's hitting Brazil very hard, but yeah, yeah I would use swear words if I, if I thought you would let me, um, <laughs> well, I would, I'm not sure yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Um, it, it was really bad really early on. Uh, three elders that I knew personally have died. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was, it's been really difficult to watch and, and be at a distance. They had, um, uh, MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, um, in the community, uh, actively trying to support um, enhancing the health access. Um, they, it's gotten better. It's improving. Uh, the Amazon region in general has been improving. They did uh, go under a lockdown, and I was um, pleasantly surprised to hear from, from many people that locking down was not like a significant economic hardship, that they were able to uh, use their gardens and use what they had uh, available without having to like, you know, like become destitute or risk their, their, their eating and stuff like that. Um, but COVID has hit hard. Uh, and the loss of elders in particular is, is really obviously significant for, for language work. Absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> It's very depressing to think about. It's really, it's really depressing to think about. And it's been, I mean, it's been really discouraging the, the change in the political situation in Brazil since I was there, um, which yeah. put the whole, you know, so I talked earlier about how the city doesn't get to be considered indigenous territory. Well, the, the whole um, frame of demarcated indigenous territories is being threatened um, yeah. by Bolsonaro. He's, um, you know, sort of elevating the military uh, presence, which in an aggressive way, like against indigenous people, uh, to an extent, like not like explicitly necessarily, but there's always been, um, some tension between, uh, military personnel and indigenous people whose communities are on the border with these other countries. And therefore they're seen as potentially like border crosser, like nefarious spies kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause they can, they, they know the, the jungle territory super well. And, you know, if they're moving across the border to talk to their families, like, are they also, you know, bringing the negative stuff that the military is worrying about? Um, right. and, uh, yeah. So, so, and of course, uh, you know, quote unquote developing and opening up, uh, the Amazon is all about, um, not allowing indigenous people to protect their their lands um so you know even the limited uh stuff that they do have uh, that wasn't necessarily present in the city is is under threat yes yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm not a fan of bolsonaro no no i same <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know who is but <laughs> you know if i could be yeah. yeah yeah it's it's tough to sort of you know much like uh 
anything in, in the US and stuff like that. It's tough to sort of watch people support that kind of thing. And, yeah. um, you know, because a lot of it in this with respect to the Amazon, I mean, it's an environmental disaster, but it's also, um, you know, just a total lack of uh, care about indigenous people's lives. Yeah, no, he does not care. <laughs> he wants, he sees them as like a, an obstacle. That's what I think. You know, they're absolutely an obstacle. And uh, he has no problem basically bulldozing them. Um, right. You know, so there's, there's been some, and there was some uh, really sad reports. Uh, the Yanomami uh, territory borders up against uh, Sao Gabriel and the Yanomami are pretty well known among some of the um, sort of indigenous issues in Latin America. Um, and they had COVID outbreaks um, in the, in the area and like children were dying really quickly and early on in that. And, oh, you know, wow. we had, yeah, there was a few really young children in Yanomami territory that died. And, you know, we've had this whole conversation here in North America about, uh, you know, kids being affected and how they don't, you know, they don't seem to get it as bad, but I think it's really telling that in these poorly resourced, you know, poor malnourished uh, communities that they do maybe, I don't know if it's a pattern, but you know, um, losing elder and children at the same time. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And children do get it. And every once in a while they do die right. and we pretend like they don't. Right. Obviously it's, it's a bigger risk in certain regions for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's what I was interested in. And I don't know is, is studied enough. It's like, huh, is it a pat? Is it a pattern that uh, children do get it worse in places where they might have less access to certain kinds of things, right? Like, you know, what are we doing yeah. about quote, like about children in their lives when we say they're not being affected? Yeah. I, I personally think it's just a way of um, not dealing with the actual reality of the situation. Like, yes. Okay. Children are less likely to get it. Yes. They're less likely to die, but that doesn't mean there's a zero. And so we need to really actually look at the facts before we make certain decisions. Yeah. But there's so many, so many. <laughs> <laughs> it's a complicated situation. So yeah. Anyway. So, um, you also brought up at the very beginning that you speak Brazilian Portuguese. So what, what made you decide to learn it? Or did you learn it as a young child? How did you learn it? I uh, decided to go to become an exchange student when I was in high school. Uh, and so I did a rotary exchange, which is a one year program. Um, and I was given the opportunity to sort of give a list of, I was reminiscing on this, like on Twitter the other day. Um, why did I choose Brazil? Because people were like, why would you want to learn Portuguese? Um, oh, why wouldn't I want to learn Portuguese? But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, so I ended up choosing Brazil. So I spent a year in a smallish town in uh, southern Brazil and uh, realized through the process of this year long exchange that actually I'm pretty good at picking up languages. And that's kind of how I became a linguist. Um, mm. Because I kind of I, I learned quicker and uh, I, I learned well and was frequently complimented in contrast to other exchange students not to like put anybody down about how quickly I was I was learning the language and I was like I don't know maybe I'm good at that so I decided to study languages uh in university because I was 16 17 when I was there so I came back and went to university after that and uh took a linguistics course you know because it was language right uh and mm -hmm. fell in love with linguistics and 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 shifted course into into that path instead so it was kind of cool for me that then, um, you know, what was it? 15, 15 years later, um, I was, you know, kind of trying to decide what I was going to do for my PhD of field work. Cause I had had one plan in Canada and it was, um, kind of falling apart for various reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said early on, it was kind of serendipitous that, uh, my supervisor who's from Venezuela, uh, was talking to colleagues in Brazil and they said something like, gosh, I wish we could, you know, I wish there was a linguistic anthropologist who was interested uh, in working in Brazil, but all the U.S. people speak Spanish. Uh, right. And my supervisor's like, huh, have a Brazilian Portuguese speaking Ph.D. student who. <laughs> and it just kind of like fell into place that I that I uh, got the opportunity to go. That's awesome. And yeah, it's always like some weird thing that propels us into linguistics. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Like That's nobody, great. You know, nobody knows who linguistics is, in, is. So it's, you know, the accidental course that you take in, uh, at some point yes. in, your, in your university career. And I uh, was intending to think about maybe I'll learn languages and become a translator or something. And 
um, took that first uh, university course in linguistics. And I was like six months into university. And I said to my parents something like, I'm going to become a linguist now. And they were like, what does that mean? And I was like, well, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that's really cool. I was, I was in engineering for first year and I really hated it. So I was just looking for anything else to do. And my, my second plan was physics. And then I saw this thing called linguistics and I was like, oh, that sounds like me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I obviously this taking up a lot of your time. Just one last question. So what is next for you? Uh, I have so many plans. I have so many things I want to do research wise. Uh, it depends on, uh, if and when I can go back. So, uh, I, it's been, I haven't been back to the Amazon since 2014, uh, cause I had another child and moved and a whole bunch of other things. And I really do hope to return and, uh, work on a project with a colleague in Brazil about, um, what's changing around multilingualism and multilingual practice and thinking about multilingualism in itself, like I mentioned earlier, as something that we can, you know, quote unquote, preserve. So focusing on language practices rather than preserving languages in that way, right? Right. Um, I also have uh, a few sort of projects underway. I, I do still work. I do work a little bit in, in Canada. Um, and I have been just thinking a lot about, uh, what it is we do and teach people uh, in how to do language revitalization. And I work with uh, some of the training institutes that exist uh, for doing language revitalization. And I think a lot about, um, again, how to think maybe uh, differently about revitalization and, and make sure we're taking into account the full social and political picture. So I have some more like, questions about how we collaborate and how we as linguists and linguistic anthropologists sort of conceptualize our role uh, in language revitalization. Um, and in a sidebar, this is, I don't know if this, you know, this is, um, there's a lot of background, but um, uh, my, I have family members who are speakers of a of, uh, heritage variety of an endangered-ish uh, European language. Um, and I really want to take the chance to just take out a recorder and record some of the Canadian version of this, uh, um, Kashubian language that, uh, is, is on its absolute last legs. There's still a few speakers and I'd, I'd really like to record, uh, some of what that sounds like before we lose those speakers. So uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had two grandparents who were speakers and both of them have been ah. in the last few years and I was like, damn it. Yeah. I was too busy well, going to the Amazon. And <laughs> there's too many things to do. Too many things to do. So I'm spreading myself real thin. <laughs> yeah, especially these days. Yeah, yeah. Well, For some of what I'm doing, you know, it depends on, you know, how long the pandemic lasts. Um, yeah. yeah. <sighs> Let's hope it's, it's over reasonably quickly. I am not a... Um, I realize that it's going to take some time, but yeah, yeah, l less yeah. rather than more would be better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm trying to make it. You know, I'm not making travel plans for 2021. That's for sure. Yeah, I know. Okay, well, thank you so very much. This was a great conversation, and I'll see you on Twitter. <laughs>